And our scripture reading this morning is taken from, if you want to turn there with me, to Psalm chapter 116. Psalm chapter 116, verses 1 through 19, I'll be reading. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, Truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Well, as I just said, we're on the threshold of a, of a uh, new year. The old one has passed, and it's time for another year to come, and usually there's a time of reflection and renewal, and people make up lists, and some people say, well, I failed so many times, I'm not bothering to make up a list, and um, maybe not, but maybe it's a time that we need to think a little bit about putting first things first. And I would like to take you to a fairly familiar passage of Scripture. You'll find it in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read it together. And it's what happened right after the birth of Jesus Christ. And as Joseph and Mary put some things in order as they dealt with some things that needed to be first. Let's read it together, and then we'll talk about it for a bit. Luke chapter 2. And we'll start reading there at verse 21. Okay, we're still in Bethlehem. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, 
a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. First things first, and as you look at 2013, let's try and put some of our priorities in order. Maggie, please. The secret is to put the big rocks in first. And I think many people sometimes make the mistake of trying to add God to a life that's already busy and full rather than putting God in place first and letting the little stuff take its place around them. Let's put the big rocks in first. Let's do first things first. And I really strongly believe that God needs to have first place in our life. And I'm going to give you two reasons this morning why I think that needs to be. Why does God need to have first place in your life? And you might be sitting here this morning and you think, well, you know, why? Why do I need to allow God to have first place in my life? My life is working the way it is. If I let God have first place in my life, <clears throat> He's going to make me do things or not do things <clears throat> that I either don't want to do or things that I do want to do. Two reasons. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Why does God need to have first place in my life? Now, you might not like this first reason, but it's one we have to consider. And the first reason God needs to have first place in our life is because He deserves it. Simply because He deserves it. He is bigger than you and I are, He is our Creator. He has the right and he has the power to tell us what to do. Now, that rankles some of us. Who does God think he is 
telling me what to do, but really he has the right and the power to do so. Take a look at Joseph and Mary at that story we just read in Luke chapter 2. God has the right to tell them what to do. And so the Bible says after Jesus was born, eight days later, they were required to go through some things. And so one of the first things was the law said, okay, this is what God had decided back in the law, that a male child had to be circumcised on the eighth day and to be named. So fine, they, they had him circumcised and they gave him his name. Not George, not Lucas, not any other name that they could think of, but they gave him the name Joshua or Jesus because that was the name God had came down through an angel and told them, this is the name you are to give him. The angel had told Mary before she even conceived, says you are to give him the name Jesus. Later on, after she was pregnant and the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, in Matthew chapter 1, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There was no negotiation. There was no debate. There were no questions. You are to give him the name Jesus. Boom. And so they did. And so they put that into place. Then 33 days later, if you look at the book of Leviticus, and you'll find the story or you'll find the commands written out in, in Leviticus chapter 12. But if you look at the book of Leviticus, the Bible says that after a woman gave birth, she was unclean for a specified number of days, and those days were, were determined by whether or not it was a boy or a girl child. And in this case, being a boy child, they had to wait another 33 days after the circumcision. And then they were supposed to present either a lamb and a bird, or if they couldn't afford the lamb, the two birds for her purification. So up until this time, Mary had been unclean. And the reason, uh, and the other thing that had to happen is God had said in, in the book of Exodus, just when he instituted the Passover, God said, every firstborn male belongs to me. God said, every firstborn male, whether it's animal or whether it is human, every firstborn male belongs to me, and you need to redeem that life. You either sacrifice it to me, that animal either gets sacrificed to me, or you redeem it. In the case of a donkey, you had to sacrifice a lamb. In the case of a, 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 a son, again, you had to offer a sacrifice. No ifs, no buts. God said this was the way it's going to be. So, who does God think he is telling Israel what to do? What gives him the right to make the rules? What gives him the right to say to Moses, these are the laws that I am going to impose on the nation of Israel, whether they like it or not, but these are the laws? Well, first of all, God has the right to do that. He created us. He created them. 
He made a nation out of, out of one man and his wives, created this nation, delivered this nation from Egypt, set it free, brought it into a land all of its own, and someone might say, well, I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to be born a Hebrew. Doesn't matter. God says, listen, I chose you. I set you apart. These are my rules for you. And God, God had a purpose for that. And one of those purposes was that the nation of Israel might be a light for the rest of the nation. Now, they kind of failed at that. See, God, God said to the nation of Israel, listen, it's not just about you. You are to be a light to the nation. People are supposed to come to you. They're supposed to be attracted to me through you, Israel. And Israel said, well, but we're special, and so we don't want to do anything with anybody else, and so we'll just go like that. Kind of sounds like some Christians, doesn't it? But God has the right to make the laws. And so if you look at the end of the chapter, at verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And there's a lot of happenings tied up in there. Matthew says that they went and stayed in Egypt for a while. But they had to do everything that was required by the law of the Lord, whether they liked it, whether they agreed with it or not. Those were the rules. God made those rules. And as sovereign and as our creator, God has the right to tell us what to do. Now, that still holds true today. You and I may not like it that there is someone bigger than us who makes the rules. I talked with a teenage boy the other day. This guy had a problem with attitude, huge problem with attitude. And he was going on about sitting in my office and telling me about how he didn't like people telling him what to do and all the rest of it. And I said to him, suck it up, son. Like, get used to it. All of life is going to be like that. There will always be somebody telling you what to do. That's the way life works, whether you like it or not. God has the right to tell us what to do. Why should God have first place in my life? Because he deserves it. Now, we have decided, we people, both as a nation and as a, for the most part, a Western culture, and as individuals, we have decided that somehow God doesn't have that right anymore. God doesn't have the right to tell us what to do. We will make our own decisions. We will make our own laws. And when it comes to things like holy living, I don't want to hear about that. I want to do what I want to do. 
What about separation from sin? I don't want to hear about that. What about loving our neighbor? What about loving each other? What about the way we spend our time? What about the way we spend our money? What about the way in which you and I find pleasure? What about our leisure time? Does God have the right to tell us what to do? Does God need to be have first place in our lives in all of those areas? Yeah, because he's bigger and better and stronger than us, and he deserves it. We may not like it, but the reality is, and we're going to get to that part, this is the part we don't like. God deserves it. He is bigger and better and stronger than us. But the second reason is because it's also what is best for us. Let me show you a video. It was sent to me by one of our church family, and it's a response to the question, where was God when this shooting happened in Newtown, Connecticut here just before Christmas? Well, maybe it's simply the attempt to express our collective shock when we say we're trying to make sense of the horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. But we're not going to make sense. Not from that which is totally disconnected from the cognitive capacity of any rational human being. The governor of Connecticut, Dan Malloy, got it right when he said evil has visited this community. President Obama, in an emotional statement from the White House, spoke more as a parent than a politician, and he quoted the Bible to bring comfort to the nation. Churches were filled in Newtown, Connecticut last night as candlelight vigils were held to grieve for the 27 innocent people killed and the countless lives of those shattered by a few seconds of crazed carnage. On Friday, Neil Cavuto asked me, where was God? And I said that for 50 years, we've systematically attempted to have God removed from our schools, our public activities, but then at the moment we have a calamity, we wonder where he was. Well, the predictable left lit up the airwaves and blogosphere with a vile and vicious reaction and jumped to the conclusion that I said that if we had prayer in school, the shooting wouldn't have happened. Well, I said nothing of the sort. It's far more than just taking prayer or Bible reading out of the schools. It's the fact that people sue a city so we aren't confronted with a manger scene or a Christmas carol, that lawsuits are filed to remove a cross that's a memorial to fallen soldiers. Churches and Christian-owned businesses are told to surrender their values under the edict of government orders to provide tax-funded abortion pills. We carefully and intentionally stop saying things are sinful, and we call them disorders. Sometimes we even say they're normal. And to get to where that we have to abandon bedrock moral truths, then we are asked, well, where was God? And I respond that as I see it, we've escorted him right out of our culture and we've marched him off the public square. And then we express our surprise that a culture without him actually reflects what it's become. As soon as the tragedy unfolded, I think God did show up. He showed up in the lives of teachers who put their lives between a gunman and their students. He showed up in policemen who rushed into the school not knowing if they would be met with a barrage of bullets. He showed up in the form of hugs and tears for children, parents, and teachers who had lived through the slaughter. He showed up at the overflow church services where people lit candles and prayed. And he showed up at the White House where the president invoked his name and quoted from his book, and in a few days or weeks, we'll probably ask God to excuse himself from view, and we will announce in our arrogant pride that we're now enlightened and educated, 
and we've evolved beyond needing them. And somebody's going to suggest that we pass a law to stop all this kind of thing. I might want to point out that we don't have to pass a new law. There's one that's been around a while that works if we teach it and observe it. Thou shalt not kill. Oh, there are about nine others, but to tell you about them would require bringing God back, and we know how unacceptable that might be. God's goal for your life and for my life, you'll find in Romans 8, verse 29. And that verse says that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. God's goal for your life and my life is to make his people, his family, to be like Jesus, his son. Now, if you don't like that, you're probably going to have some issues. You see, because if you name Jesus as your Savior, God says, I'm going to work in you. And I'm going to tell you what to do. And my goal for your life is to make you look like my son. I'm really proud of him. Now, we all look different. but God says, I want you to have those values. I want you to live by his principles. I want you to do those things that he does because what he does is right. You see, ultimately, God's will is the very best thing that could ever happen to us. We rebel against that. Ultimately, God's will is the very best thing that ever could happen to us. Why should I put God first in my life? Number one, because he deserves it. Number two is because ultimately, it's the very best thing that ever could happen to me is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And we, in our human nature, say, no way. Our human nature says, I will make my own decisions. No one gets to tell me what to do. I know what I want. I know what I need. And I will do whatever I need to do to get what I want and what I need. It all started way back before creation when Satan said, and God said to him, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. You see, when I say, God, you can't tell me what to do. If God's up here and I'm down here and I say, God, you can't tell me what to do, then automatically I elevate myself to that place up here. I know better. I will not submit to you. And so you have to ask yourself, what is God like? Can I really trust him? Is God capricious, selfish, vindictive like the gods that the other nation worship, gods that, that I have to placate, gods that I have to please in order to get them to back off? <coughs> if I want something, i got to suck up to them to get what I want. Or is God really good and loving 
and trustworthy? Is God really the one who so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Can't you trust someone like that? Is it that hard to put someone who loves you so much that he would give his son for you? Is it so hard to put him first in your life? Are you scared of him? You know, as I've been, I guess I'm getting old enough now that I'm, I think I'm at the stage where I can still say a few things without being considered a cranky old man. But as I watch people, I see a lot of people going through some horrendously hard times that frankly are a result of stupidity. And every once in a while, I shake my head and I say, stupid, stupid, stupid people. Now, sometimes that's directed at me because I do dumb things. But think of this verse from Isaiah chapter 48. God is talking to his people of Israel. And the Bible says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So this is God talking to us here. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you. Ooh. Lord, I want to make that decision myself. Come on. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. And here it is. If only, God said, if only, <coughs> if only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. God said, I have so much planned for you. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And I look at people and I look at the trouble they have in their lives and I look at the dumb decisions that people have made and like, if only, oh Lord, why am I so old and I'm finally starting to learn this? If only I had paid attention to your commands, my peace would have been like a river. And then the scary part is what it says in verse 22, a couple of verses later. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. Why should I put God first in my life and then fit the rest of my life around him? Because what he has in mind for me is the very best. Why do we have such a hard time believing that? If only we would pay 
attention to His command. And as we stand on the threshold of a new year, I'm standing before you this morning, and I don't want, I want to do more than to exhort you. I want to do more than to encourage you. I want to do more than simply to tell you something. But I'm standing before you this morning as your friend, as your brother, and as a pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, please, please pay attention to God's commands because when you do, your peace will be like a river. You will find a contentment that you will never find anywhere else. And I don't care what you pursue. I don't care where you go. I don't care what you're looking for. I don't care what price you're willing to pay. You will never, ever, ever find what you're looking for until you first put God first in your life. And you can run all over this world and pursue contentment. You can pursue satisfaction. You can pursue pleasure. You can pursue materialism. You can pursue whatever it is that you can think of. And you, I will guarantee you, I'm not a genius, but I know something about this. I guarantee you, you will never, ever, ever find what you are looking for until you learn to give God first place in your life. Does that mean your life's going to go smooth? No. But you will never find what you're looking for until you put God first in your life. As I said, I'm getting older. And as I look around, I see many people in needless pain and misery. I see people pursuing all kinds of things in the search for happiness and contentment. The trouble with that is you wind up hurting yourself and you wind up hurting everybody else around you. When you leave God out of the picture, you will never get what you want. If only... God is talking to his people Israel. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. And then God says, but there is no peace for the wicked, for those who pursue their own goals, their own pleasures. Scary. And so I beseech you, beg you this morning. And it's not just a one-time decision. It Many different little decisions, days, weeks, whatever. But as you're standing at the threshold of a new year, as you're trying to put the rocks in place and fill in the little stuff around it, put that biggest rock there that says, I will give God first place in my life this year. And when you do, your peace will be like a river. We sing that song in Awana, I've got peace like a river. Yeah, but here's how you get it. If only 
you had paid attention to my commands. Let's pray together. Father, it's relatively easy to sing those words and then to walk out of this building and forget all about it and go back huh, to putting ourselves first. Lord, help us to get you in place, first place in our lives. And then, Lord, help us to experience your love, your goodness, and your peace that flows like a river, deep and strong and wide and for all of eternity. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.